Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Grab your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 4. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and a good good time with family. We, um, we have a, a special for you this morning, Heritage Bible Church, a, a post-Thanksgiving special, four sermons for the price of one, kind of a holdover from, from Black Friday. So this really is, a, is an incredible deal, and I want to kind of show you how this breaks down. Don't worry, it won't be four sermons in length, only in content, as everyone breathes a sigh of relief and <clears throat> keeps their lunch reservations. So Philippians chapter 4, which Nick read for us in verses 1 through 9, just kind of give you a little bit of an outline and show you how my sermons break down this morning. First, we're going to have a sermon on unity and faithfulness in verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to have uh, the first bonus sermon on joy and gentleness in verses 4 and 5. And then we get a sermon on prayer and peace in verses 6 and 7. And then the remainder of the passage, verses 8 and 9, will be about focusing our hearts and our thoughts on the things that are good for Christians to focus their hearts and minds on. So unity and faithfulness, joy and gentleness, prayer and peace, and focusing our hearts and minds on the Word of God. So there you go, four sermons in one, no extra charge for you this morning. Well, as children of God, we have a lot to be thankful for, right? I hope you spent some time reciting some of those blessings with your family. You know, I don't know if you have the habit of just kind of going around the table and saying what we're thankful for, and then your, you know, teenage son is stumped. I can't think of anything I'm thankful for. Well, what about your Xbox? Okay, I'm thankful for my Xbox, you know. <clears throat> Talk about the things that, the blessings that God has given us as a family, hopefully this week. And this fourth and final chapter of Philippians sets before us the great promise and blessing of peace that we have. We see it in the Old Testament and Passages like Psalm 23, we see it even in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, where we are uh, regularly on Sundays. And even as you can see from just the little outline that I gave you already, this first section, it, it indicates that Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they would genuinely encounter peace in their relationship with the Lord, but not only in their relationship with the Lord, also peace with others, peace on a practical, relational level with other people. And of course, I'm drawn to this passage this week in part because it mentions an attitude of thankfulness. And the fact that an attitude of thankfulness is one of the keys to gaining victory over anxiety and replacing it with a peaceful heart. How does it sound to have peace in your home? How does it sound to have peace in your own life, in in your soul, deep down in your soul, peace that overwhelms your anxious thoughts, your tendency to worry? Now, our our ladies earlier in the year uh, went through the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. So they've got this covered. So ladies, just, you know, relax. I know you don't, you no longer have any worries, you know, no no anxieties. So this will be just for the men, you know, because you ladies have got this all figured out already. First, a little bit of of background as we, as we kind of try to, try to grab hold of what's offered to us in Christ in relation to peace. Paul's relationship with the church at Philippi is a close one. We see it right off the bat in chapter 4 and the way that he refers to them. 
the Philippian church had helped him financially. They heard of his imprisonment of Rome. They sent Epaphroditus with a gift for him. A couple of different times they helped him financially. Probably no other church provided the same kind of loving fellowship, thoughtfulness, just encouragement for Paul, especially in his prison experience. And Philippians is kind of a thank you letter to them for that gift, and it's the most personal of all the letters that Paul wrote to the church. And before we jump into our passage this morning, why don't you actually turn back to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, understanding that in this context, as as Paul is writing from prison, he's not sure whether he's going to experience release from prison or whether he's going to experience martyrdom for his faith. And he says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul didn't know what his future held. Paul didn't know uh, what his circumstances were going to turn into, but he was certain of one thing, that he wanted Christ to be exalted either way. Maybe you find yourself in some difficult circumstances, some some hardships, some anxiety-inducing situation right now. If we can grab hold of this initial commitment of Paul that our greatest desire in life is that God would be glorified, we're well on our way. Paul knew that it was going to take courage for him to face death with a proper attitude. Paul's main concern was not what happened to him, but his concern was what would his testimony be, and wanting to continue to have a good testimony before the Philippians. And the truth is, whether we die a martyr's death or whether we live a long, full Christian life, no matter what circumstances come and go from our lives, we can seek the glory of God. We all know that life brings hardship and trial, and some of us are in the the thick of it right now, but God carries us through, and we can live a life of gratitude a life that's characterized by thankfulness, not just one day a year, but every single day for the believer, a life of thanksgiving, because we know that God is at work in our circumstances. Back to chapter 4, look at these first three verses, and just notice that we start verse 1 with the word therefore. So therefore is going to introduce all this kind of exhortation, right? I hope we'll have a, a pretty good mix this morning of finding some encouraging words, but also maybe of being exhorted a little bit by Paul to to examine if there are things in our life that we need to tweak, that we need to make adjustments in, in order to live a life that's pleasing to God. And so Paul is introducing all of this based on what he wrote in chapter 3. He wrote in chapter 3 about sanctification. He wrote about our glorification. And so it's in light of those topics that he wants us to strive after the things that he mentions in chapter 4. And the apostle's affection for his congregation, I mentioned this this close relationship that he has, and it's it's revealed here by the words that he uses, his his love, his longing for them. He calls them his brothers. He says that they are his joy and crown. He calls them his dear friends. Notice that they are being referred to as the source of Paul's joy. So twice he uses this word beloved, it's the same word that the father uses in Matthew chapter 3 in addressing the son when he says, this is my beloved son. Paul has so much affection for them. And many of the New Testament 
verses on joy happen to be about finding joy in relationship and fellowship with other believers. The faithfulness of fellow Christians is supposed to cheer us. Sad to think that so many people have been hurt by churches, have been damaged by relationships in churches, have been had, had, their, had their joy stolen by churches that maybe are not functioning the way they ought to. Do you often think thoughts of praise and thanksgiving because of your church? We find joy when we have the chance to serve and encourage and, and minister to other Christians. And we find joy in witnessing the ministry of other Christians. This is a huge source of joy. 2 Corinthians 7 talks about this. <clears throat> we're, not, we're not jealous of someone else's ministry. We're thrilled about someone else's opportunity for ministry, success in ministry. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Go ahead and flip over to, to Philippians 2. I want you to see this in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 2. The unity of believers brings us joy. And so Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Are these things that can be easily found in our church? Faithful believers who encourage each other and build each other up? Does unity describe our interactions with one another? I, I believe these things are true of Heritage Bible Church. Not that we're a perfect church, but that by the grace of God, we have so much to be thankful for. And notice how Paul says that he longed to see them in chapter 4. Paul wanted to be with the saints, with his friends. He, he wanted to fellowship with them. And not just because he was in prison. You know, well, I'd rather be at church than in prison, right? Some of you are like, yeah, that's kind of my attitude towards church. <clears throat> no, we love church. We long for it. It's a cause for great joy and thanksgiving. Church is not intended to be a burden. It's intended to be a blessing. Sunday is the best day of the week in our home because we can't wait to be together. And I just encourage you, make it a consistent habit. Just show your gratitude to the Lord by being here at every possible opportunity. And can I just add on a personal note, a pastoral note, that my, my family has been at Heritage for about 16 months now, and we're so blessed. And so encouraged. And I just want to say thank you to the members of this church and to the leadership of this church for the fellowship and the unity and the growth that we are experiencing here. It's an incredible blessing and cause for joy for us. Notice in verse 2, <clears throat> then he points out two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who apparently are not doing such a great job of maintaining the unity of the body of Christ and experiencing joy in one another. And uh, so they're just not getting along so well, and so they kind of get called out here. How would you like that, right? You're having some, you know, interpersonal conflict with someone, and so the pastor's just like, Susie, Mary, what's going on, okay? We need to get this straightened out, like, fr from the pulpit. I thought it was only pastor's kids that get called out from the pulpit, you know? I've done that before, like, hey, you know, <laughs> knock it off, right? It's one of the benefits of being a PK. I mean, can you imagine having this read in front of the whole church? Not to mention the fact that it's immortalized in the Word of God. It's kind of embarrassing to have your name in there in this way, right? <clears throat> but you know what it shows us? It shows us how much God cares about unity, right? It's a good area to examine ourselves in. Frankly, folks, if, if we find ourselves in constant 
conflict with others, it, it might at least be worth pausing and just asking the question, is it me? <laughs> right? If you're constantly in conflict with others, the, the one common denominator in all the conflicts is you're part of it, take a look in the mirror, right? It, it kind of reminds me of the parents who uh, approached the high school marching band director. And they said, we, we got a, a, an issue we need to talk to you with. We've noticed in the, the last uh, couple of marching band performances that every student is out of step except for our son. <laughs> well, <laughs> it might just be the common denominator there, right? So we want to make sure that we're not a cause for unity, uh, disunity. We want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can do to be at peace with all men, right? As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. Listen, folks, the Lord values his bride. The Lord loves his church. The Lord cares about how you treat others. And so in every interaction that you have with others in the church, you are impacting them for better or worse. You're either bringing glory to God in the way you treat others or you're not. And by the way, just to rescue these ladies and their reputation a little bit, you got to look at verse 3, right? They're not all bad, okay? Just in case you get the wrong impression about these ladies, uh, along with Clement and others, Paul commends them for being faithful in helping them. These are faithful Christian women. These are faithful servants of the Lord. And so this also tells us that not only does the Lord see when we, when we do something wrong, but the Lord sees when we do well, right? Not only does the Lord say, like, hey, like, like get it together here, let's, let's, let's seek unity, but also God is pleased with their faithful service and the way they're ministering to Paul. We see then in the, in the next section, verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I'm not going to sing this for you. Don't worry. Let your gentle spirit, although it's been going through my mind all week, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Well, first we have this command to rejoice. It just means to be glad, to be joyful. You know, there, there are a lot of miserable people in the world, and I think much of the world, frankly, has just kind of given up on finding any measure of true joy, but not Christians. We have joy because God gave it to us. You remember Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit? There's a thing in there, there's three letters, joy, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. We have joy. The Spirit produces it in us. And we did a little study together on joy last year, and I mentioned that there are 33 different word combinations relating to joy in the Old and New Testament, literally hundreds of verses about joy and happiness and gladness and mirth and blessedness over and over throughout Scripture. This is a major theme. Notice here that it's an imperative. That means it's a command. The reality is that you can only have true joy. You can only be obedient to this command if you have a heart that is right with God. Because it's only when you recognize that because of his great love for you, Christ died on the cross, bearing the weight of your sin. It's only when you choose to follow Christ and you, you enter into the new life that he gives. It's only through a relationship with Christ, which is the only way to heaven and the only way to peace with God, that you can find the way to a life of joy. Paul knew this. And Paul is an amazing example of a person who had inner joy even when his circumstances stunk. 
Paul urges the, the Philippian church to listen to him, to follow his example. He's in prison when he writes this letter, he had, and yet he had experienced the peace of God that results from doing exactly what he encourages in verse 6. He experiences the peace of God that results from casting his care upon the Lord through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And he understands the blessing that comes to his own heart when he meditates upon the things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, exactly as he encourages in verses 8 and 9, he encourages the Philippians to do. Paul is doing this. Robert Leitner wrote that Paul, as a prisoner who knew the depths of suffering, is well qualified to discuss the experience of peace, which he desires the Philippian Christians to have. In a modern context, when many Christians experience anxiety, this chapter becomes an important revelation from God for mental and emotional health in a tension-filled world. I think if we're honest, we would say that it, it seems that many Christians are living as if God has not given them anything to be thankful for. We're forgetting the blessings of God, to, to count our blessings, to name them one by one, to wake up each morning realizing that the fact that we woke up this morning and drew breath is a gift and a blessing from God, and then we begin to, to number and name all of the blessings from there. <clears throat> Living, failing to live in light of the blessings that, that we have in Christ it reminds me of the story of a, a man, a, a poor man, who had wanted to go on a, a cruise his whole life. And even as a child, he just dreamed of spending a week in a, in a cruise ship environment, enjoying the fresh air and relaxing in a luxurious environment, just so, so different than the way he was raised and, and the meager lifestyle that he had. And so he scrimped and he saved and he saved his money for years and he carefully counted every penny and finally he had enough to purchase a cruise ticket. And he could hardly believe that he was actually going to live out this dream. With his entire life savings going to pay for the cruise ticket, he knew he wouldn't be able to afford all the elegant food that was pictured in the cruise brochure, so he decided to bring along a week's supply of bread and peanut butter, and that was all he could afford. This is how my wife thinks we're supposed to travel across the country for vacation. You know, I'll make a cooler and I'll put sandwiches in it, and then you know, dad takes everybody out to eat and all the sandwiches are still in the cooler, right? <laughs> this guy goes on the cruise, he's got bread and peanut butter. He's going to eat them in his room. And, he, you know, the first days of the cruise were thrilling. But eventually he's kind of getting tired of sitting alone in his room eating peanut butter sandwiches. And by the final day of the cruise, he couldn't take it any longer. He, he stopped one of the porters and he exclaimed, tell me how I can get one of these meals. I'm, I'm dying for some decent food. I'll do anything. I'll do whatever, whatever work, whatever odd job, anything to, to get one of these meals. And the, the porter said, sir, don't you have a ticket for the cruise? He said, yes, but I spent everything I had for the ticket, and I have nothing left to buy food with. Sir, don't you realize meals are included with your passage? You can eat as much as you like. So my fear is that sometimes as Christians, we're living our Christian life like this man. We, we forget or we ignore the incredible blessings that are ours in Christ, and we're just kind of munching on stale bread. Everything that we need in life is included in the cost of admission, and the Savior paid it. 
We don't want to be content with less than the abundant life that Christ said he came to purchase for us. And so all the blessings that are ours, all of these things that I listed initially as the outline of this passage, right? Unity and fellowship, faithfulness, joy, access to the throne room of God in prayer, inner peace, a life of gratitude, sanctification of mind, of, of purity of thoughts and practice. All of these things are things promised to us in Christ, if we'll just grab hold of them. Notice in verse 5, <clears throat> in addition to joy, believers are to have something else. Again, just a little check for us. That is gentleness. Gentleness means that you don't get worked up easily. You don't retaliate against people or circumstances. Outwardly, you're not harsh with others. The idea is that you, as a gentle person, go out of your way to show consideration for others. Now, the test is not to ask you if you are gentle. The test is to ask others if you are gentle. So if I go to your workplace, if I go to your home, if I ask your husband, your wife, your children, your coworkers, are you a gentle person? Do they answer with a laugh, right? <laughs> or do they respond in the affirmative? And, and we know this because it says gentleness, what? Which is to be evident to all, right? That's the picture. And, and I, I love, Paul does this so often. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us the reason. Isn't that good? That's good parenting, right? Give the reason behind it. Why should we be gentle, verse 5? Because the Lord is near. Because we believe in the imminent return of Christ, when Christ returns, think about it this way. How do you think you'll feel about all of your petty bickering, your silly, childish arguments, the things that you get so worked up over that, that cause you to lash out and attack other human beings created in the image of God? How do you think you will feel about those things when Christ returns? They'll seem so small. They'll seem so insignificant. So we're living in light of the return of Christ, and, and we're living in light of eternity, because the return of Christ is what ushers us into glory, and now all of these problems and all these things that seem so important to us and, and caused our, our anxiety and, and, and made our gentleness go out the window are all of a sudden just really not that important. Look at verses 6 and 7 then. <clears throat> Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want us to be anxious for anything. He commands us to rid our hearts and minds of stress and worry. Can I pause for a second and just ask Honestly, as you search your own heart, does this even seem possible to you? Does it even seem realistic to be rid of your anxiety? I mean, we're anxious about so many things so often. I think it's exciting to know that God wants to rid us of this. I think it's thrilling to understand that God doesn't command us to do things that he doesn't empower us for. And he is empowering us for this. And the truth is that our anxious thoughts, much as we would like to deny it, have their root in a lack of faith. 
MacArthur says that our anxious thoughts are usually a direct result of a failure to understand that everything is already under control and somebody better than you is running it. So often we want to we take control. We want to tell God, this is the way it needs to be. This is how it needs to work. These are where the pieces need to go. Which really is a manifestation of a lack of faith. Now, I would never want to get up here and be bold enough to say that Scripture calls worry a sin. So I'm just going to quote Dwight Pentecost when he says it. That way, if it bothers you, he'll get in trouble instead of me. All right, so this is what he says. Do you ever find yourself worrying? Do you know that Scripture calls worry a sin? When you realized that you were worrying, did you go to God and confess it as a sin? Worry is just as much a sin as adultery or murder or theft, yet how often we as believers treat it lightly when we find our stomachs tied in knots because we have worried ourselves into a nervous frenzy. We don't realize that we've fallen into sin. I think it's difficult when we look at the commands of Scripture, even in this passage itself, to deny the truthfulness of what Pentecost is saying. But the good news is that Paul, under the inspiration of Scripture, is not just saying, stop it. Everybody stop worrying. Okay, sermon over. Have a good day. He's giving us a way. He's laying out a path for us. Paul understands that it is God who orchestrates all of history, that it is God who is in control of his present circumstances as he's writing from prison, and that it is God who is in control of the day of every single saint. And so he gives us this recipe here. If you can kind of see, go into your, into your spiritual kitchen and, and whip up a concoction to rid yourself of anxiety. Verses 4 and 5, he says, take a little bit of joy and mix it in. Take some gentleness, put that in. And then he says, sprinkle in some awareness of Christ's imminent return. Joy and gentleness, and awareness of the return of Christ. And the result should be that our anxiety begins to melt away. And not only are we to rid ourselves of anxiety, but Paul says, don't worry, I've got something you can put in its place, right? You get rid of all that anxiety, you're going to have a big hole to fill. And verse 6 says, what should we do instead of worrying? Pray. Take our cares, take our requests to God. D.A. Carson says, pressures mount and surround us and bully us until even the Christian who hears the injunction of this passage, do not be anxious about anything, smiles half bitterly and mutters, you don't understand, it can't be done. We hear Paul say, don't be anxious, and then pray. We think, oh great, just pray, right? One of the great Christian band-aids, like, read your Bible more, go to church and pray, right? You know the thing about those three Christian band-aids, those three you know, great weapons of every Christian counselor? I would say almost every person who's come into my office for counseling, when we go to those three things and I say, how are you doing, there's a severe lack in at least one of those areas, right? So we may think of those as you know, weak things or, or basic Christian truths, but unless you're living out those basic Christian truths, don't turn your nose up at them, right? Especially here as we talk about prayer. I mean, frankly, how dare we turn our nose up at the thought that prayer can be a, a major component in ridding us of anxiety? Think about it. 
Because when we say to pray, what we're really saying is that the almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God, creator of the universe, cares about and is available to you. That you can go before the throne of the omnipotent God with the things that concern you today. Is that a small thing? Carson goes on to say, but of course it can be done. Part of our problem is that we hear this command not to worry, perhaps at a conference or in a book, and we smile piously, grit our teeth, resolve not to worry, and promptly begin to worry about not worrying. (laughs) Ever been there? What we overlook is that Scripture here tells us how to overcome our anxieties. To not be anxious about anything is not a naked prohibition. The alternative is immediately provided. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It's just as 1 Peter 5 says, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. It's pretty amazing. In his book, Tyranny of the Urgent, Charles Hummel says, that if we are prayerless, we are saying with our actions, if not with our lips, that we do not need God, right? Certainly, we would never say those words out loud. We would never raise our fist to God and say we don't need him, I hope. But if we don't take our anxieties, if we don't take our worries diligently, faithfully to him in prayer and, and leave them there, it's essentially what we're saying. I got this. I can do this. I can take care of it. I'm going to worry my way through this. Back in Philippians 4, what we see is that the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about what? Everything. You want to be anxious about nothing, be prayerful about everything. Isn't it incredible to think that you can take everything to the Lord? Do you ever worry that, you know, your prayer requests, your things that you're worried about or that you think you need to bring to the Lord, that, that they're too small, they're, they're, they're too little for him. You know, ha- having done student ministry for a long time and, and having done, you know, prayer meetings with middle school girls, it's like, uh, my aunt's cousin's former roommate's hamster has a hangnail, and if we could all just join hands and pray, you know, I mean, it's, they want to pray about everything, right? And sometimes it's like, okay, is this worth taking before the throne of God? But folks, we got to be careful with that kind of thinking, don't we? He cares for you. The reality is, what can I take before the throne of God that's a big thing to God, right? I mean, not that he doesn't care about it, but but simply saying, like, in relation to his power, in relation to his ability to affect change or to meet my needs, everything is small to him. And if we're trying to hide our anxiety or the things that we're worried about from God by not bringing it to him, that doesn't work. Hide and seek with God never really works out very well, just so you know. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. We might as well bring it to him. And so Paul uses four words here to describe the way in which we communicate to God. First, he uses the word prayer. And the word prayer there really is just kind of the essence of worship and devotion. It describes the way a believer approaches God, coming to God with reverence and and respect and, and awe for him. We come to him in worship first and foremost. Supplication. Is a more detailed requesting. It's a, an answer, seeking an answer to a specific need. You know, we can pray specifically to God. 
I think as a young Christian, this is one of the things that I learned that, that revolutionized my prayer life. I think as a young Christian, my prayers were kind of like, you know, dear Jesus, bless the whole world, right? And, and at some point, I was like, oh, okay, prayer can be more specific than that, right? Actual needs of actual people. Actually praying to God, like what, what I desire, what I think the outcome ought to be as best as I know, submitting myself to the will of God since he knows better, bring your requests to God. Thanksgiving is the next word. The mindset, the heart attitude that should always accompany our prayers. Just this attitude of gratitude that, that recognizes God's provision for us. And I think that when we come to God with thanksgiving, we're, we're kind of recognizing what God has already done. And in recognizing that, maybe we're ex expressing faith for what God will do or what God can do in the, the present circumstances of our life. And really, this is a, a key answer to anxiety. Okay, prayer for others, prayer for ourselves mixed with thanksgiving. And it's so interesting. Make a study of this, of how Paul, how often Paul combines thanksgiving and prayer. Apparently, this is supposed to be a major part of our Christian life, not just once a year. Did you know that? Turns out. Ephesians chapter 5, always giving thanks for all things. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. 1 Timothy 2, 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. It takes faith to thank God when you're in difficult circumstances. It takes faith to thank God when your requests haven't been granted yet. Thanksgiving is an expression of faith in God. Remember last week in the raising of Lazarus? Jesus doesn't even pray to God to ask him to raise Lazarus. He just goes straight to Thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> that you did this. Like, what? What in the world? It's incredible, right? Now, understand, Jesus has a, a pipeline. He has a, a direct connection to what the plan of God is, right? So we can't necessarily presume upon God that God is going to do things our way or answer our prayers in exactly the way we want. But what we can do is we can presume that God will be faithful to his nature, to his character, that God will do what's best for his glory and our good, right? And so we can Pray to God with confidence. We can pray to God with thanksgiving. Paul says, even if you're encountering various trials, right? We're to give thanks and we're to live joyfully. And so Paul is, is cautioning the believer, really, I think, in a sense, telling the unbeliever, don't, don't live like a practical atheist. Don't live like the unbeliever. You know, one of, the, one of the chief traits of the unregenerate man is the absence of gratitude to God. Paul even says that in Romans 1.21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks. So for the believer, Paul says, don't, don't whine, don't complain, don't have a murmuring spirit because these things are really a, a lack of an expression of faith in God's goodness and faithfulness. It's failing to believe, Romans 8.28, that, that God really will bring everything together for our good and his glory. MacArthur explains that God's promises support the reasonableness of the, of the saints always praying with thanksgiving 
regardless of the circumstances, right? So from an outside perspective, somebody might look at your circumstances, the year that you've had, the month that you've had, the day that you're having, and say, why would you thank God for this mess, right? And yet as believers who have a deeper doctrinal understanding of the Lord and his plan and what's being carried out, MacArthur says that God has promised that no trial believers face will be too difficult for them to handle. He's also promised to use everything that happens in believers' lives for their ultimate good. People become worried, anxious, and fearful because they do not trust in God's wisdom, power, or goodness. They fear that God is not wise enough, not strong enough, not good enough to prevent disaster. It may be that this sinful doubt is because our knowledge of him is faulty or that sin in our lives has crippled our faith. Thankful prayer brings release from fear and worry because it affirms God's sovereign control over every circumstance and that his purpose is the believer's good. And so the final word that Paul uses for prayer here is requests. Again, speaks of a definite and a specific thing asked for. What an incredible blessing that we can go before the throne of our Heavenly Father and bring our request to Him. Have that kind of intimate family relationship just as we crawl up in the, the lap of our Father and make our request known. I hear a, a, a constant refrain in my house from my two-and-a-half-year-old, candy, daddy, candy, 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 daddy. I'll just all day long, she just wants candy. And as long as mom's not looking and not counting how often dad's giving her candy, she usually gets it, right? It's my joy to give her something that brings a smile to her face that's good, that, that, that pleases her, good for her at least momentarily, right? Mom's looking over the long term. I'm looking short term. All right, look at verse 7. The promise is that <clears throat> when we do this, when, when we trade our anxiety for faith, look at verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow. What an incredible promise. What, what an, an incredible tale to what we're being told to do here. If you do this, if you practice this, if you put this into effect in your life, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So purchased by Christ, sealed by the work and and, and person of Christ. And not only that, but remember earlier when we said we we read be anxious for nothing and maybe we kind of think, yeah, right, I wish, you know, it'll never, never accomplish this for me. Well, notice, which surpasses all comprehension. You can have peace beyond what you believe is possible, beyond what you think you could ever achieve or attain. It's there for you. And part of it comes as we look at verses 8 and 9 and we begin to to take control over our own thought life. We begin to focus our mind. It says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Notice by the word finally in verse 8, Paul indicates that he's, a, he's about to conclude this section. And he concludes by giving us eight criteria for evaluating our thought life. And verse 8 will be life-transforming for you if you will let it. Don't believe the lies of the devil that lead to anxious or impure thoughts. What we really want to do, we want to apply this test of these eight things. If you would use verse 8 as a litmus test for your thinking, how much would your life change? Apply it to your thought life. Apply it to what you view on TV or your phone or your computer. Apply it to every conversation that you have. Pastor Jack Hughes is a pastor of Anchor Bible Church in Kentucky, and he, he posts often on Twitter uh, these terrific uh, sentence diagrams of Scripture, and he has a, a, a diagram that he posted a few weeks ago on Philippians 4, 8 and 9. And uh, he asked the question as the introduction to it, <clears throat> do you have a grumbling, complaining, nagging, carping, snarky, harsh, cutting, kvetching, selfish, proud, or condescending spirit? Evaluate your stinking thinking in light of God's word. Repent and confess your sin and start glorifying God in your thinking. And then he kind of walks you through the verse, and it's pretty simple in verse 8 to see, finally, brethren, right? And then the heading under that are the eight criteria for evaluating your thoughts. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it of good repute? Is it excellent? Is it worthy of praise? And we use these things as a filter, as a grid, and we run our thoughts through them. Thoughts come into to our minds haphazardly, right? We can't always control the thoughts that come into our mind, but we can control at what level we entertain them. And so these thoughts come into our mind, and we run them through this grid as a filter, and we only keep what comes out the other side. We only keep the things that are true and noble and right and pure. Robert Leitner defines each of these words for us. True is simply things that are, of course, the, the opposite of dishonest or unreliable things. The things that are true are the things that uh, correspond to reality. How often are we anxious or worried over things that never come to be and never really uh, turned out to be true to begin with? True means it aligns with the Word of God. Anything contrary to the Word of God is false. Noble or honorable refers to what is dignified, what's worthy of respect. Right refers to conformity to God's standards of righteousness, God's standards of good and evil. Pure refers to what is wholesome, not mixed with moral impurity. Lovely speaks of those things that promote peace rather than conflict, kind of hearkening back to the, the first part of our passage. Admirable or of good repute relates to what is positive and constructive rather than negative and destructive. Again, uh, not tearing down, not a lack of gentleness, but unity and harmony and building one another up. And these six objects then are described as excellent and praiseworthy. And notice, there's a correlation between verse 8 and verse 9. In verse 8, the correlation, is, the, the correlation is between these two things. One is dwelling on these things in verse 8, 
And verse 9, practicing these things. Right? Not just sitting around thinking the right thoughts, but thinking the right thoughts that's going to lead you to the right practice, to the right action, to the right lifestyle, because belief determines behavior. And so if something is not true or honorable or right or pure or lovely or good or excellent or praiseworthy, cut it out of your life. Get on God's path. Walk by the Spirit. What different... What difference might this thinking make to your anxious thoughts? What different difference might it make to your communication in your home? What difference might it make to your Netflix queue or your browser history if you run all of these things through this grid? And you get on God's path and you walk by the Spirit and you pursue hard after God and you pursue hard after holiness. We have to learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And Titus 2 tells us that our Christianity instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So quickly, just to kind of wrap up these two verses, number one, step one is to evaluate your thinking according to these eight things. Step two is to dwell on what glorifies God, so fill your mind only with the things that come out the other side of this grid. Number three is to practice the truth. And, and look at what it says, that the Philippians learned, received, heard, and observed the Apostle Paul living out these truths. And Paul, in, in, in all humility, is saying, I, I taught this to you. We studied this together. You, you got this from me, and you've seen me do this. And so Paul is not being a hypocrite. He's He's setting an example for them. And so we evaluate our thinking. We dwell on what glorifies God. We practice the truth. And then the final step is to receive God's peace. As we put these things into practice, as we proactively pursue what God has called us to, our anxiety melts away. The peace of God fills our heart. Can you imagine the joy that's going to be yours. Can you imagine the difference in your day, the difference in your relationships as your heart and mind are overwhelmed by the peace of God and you're pursuing hard after him to live a life that honors and glorifies him in all things? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who offers these things to us, that through Christ the price has been paid not only for the forgiveness of our sins for an eternity in heaven, the salvation for which we are abundantly thankful for, but also, Father, abundant life here and now. We don't try to peddle a gospel that says that when you come to Christ, everything will be perfect and, and there will be no more bumps in the road and no more, no more hardships. But, Father, we're so thankful to have a God who loves us and walks us through the difficulties and hardships of life and, and promises us that even in the most difficult of circumstances that we encounter, you can give us peace. Peace that's deep down in our heart and that overwhelms our circumstances. Father, I pray that we would grab hold of it, that, that we wouldn't have all these blessings that we're not taking advantage of or using, but that we would draw near to you and seek all the blessings that you have for us, that we would come alongside and encourage one another, that you would just continue to protect and fill Heritage Bible Church with unity and love and care and compassion for one another. We thank you for it. It's in your name we pray.